0: My and Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video I'm going to be discussing one of the topics that Tolkien found very important to him personally, and which he very much thought was a crucial aspect of the Northern European culture, and which had been largely lost over time, but one which he found to have kind of been well not so much found but one which he kind of attempted to christianize in his own work although it had been kind of christianized in some earlier stuff as well specifically beowulf and this is the idea that he termed northern courage and the quintessential example of this is the the Norse concept of you know the the final battle because in the Ragnarok according to Norse legend the bad guys ultimately win. (laughs) And the point here is that the Norse have this view that in Ragnarok, the giants are eventually going to kill all the gods and all of the warriors who have been brought to Valhalla to fight in the final battle at Ragnarok. Nevertheless, the Norse found the idea of fighting against these odds, despite certain defeat, a good thing in and of itself, and this is, like I said, the quintessential example of northern courage. It's this idea that you can know you're going to lose, but it is nevertheless still the virtuous thing to fight on the right side, and there's even a sort of virtue in fighting on a side you know is going to lose in and of itself. Now, the Christianization of this idea comes in the form of what I would term, again using Tolkien's own words, the long defeat of history. And this phrase pops up in both his letters and in the mouth of Galadriel. Galadriel says, long ago she and Kelleborn came over the mountains and have been fighting the long defeat. Now, the long defeat here can be taken in one of two ways the long defeat could be considered the fight against Sauron, which is doomed to ultimate failure, you know, unless something kind of miraculous happens, which it does, in terms of Bilbo finding the ring, Rodo Frodo inheriting the ring, and then ultimately managing to get the ring to Mount Doom and getting it destroyed. In that sense, the defeat is not certain. But there is a another sense in which the defeat is certain, and that is the elves are going to fade and leave Middle-earth one way or the other, and it's going to end not well in that sense. And it's going to end not well for two reasons. One being the elves are going to fade because that's just their nature, but also everything that they have made in Middle-earth is going to kind of come to naught, because once the One Ring is destroyed, if it is, Sauron will be defeated, but also everything done with the three Elven Rings will be undone, and it will diminish what, you know, beauty they have managed to create in Middle-earth. So in some sense, the defeat, which here defeat is used as kind of a hyperbolic term, is inevitable. It's not a defeat in the sense of they have been defeated by an enemy, but their their aims and designs have been defeated by, you know, just events, essentially. So, this is the way that Galadriel is using the term, one of those two ways, or a combination of both. Tolkien uses it in a letter to describe his view of history as a Christian, and his words are to the effect that, as a Christian, I view all of history as a long defeat. It's all going badly, The only thing that's going to save it, ultimately, is the return of Jesus Christ. And here is where the Christianization of the idea of Northern Courage comes in. And Galadriel's meaning of the term long defeat is kind of the marriage of those two senses. Tolkien says that all of history, and he means that in a very specific way, is a long defeat. When he says history, he is not including what happens when Jesus Christ returns and everything after that. He is, when he says history, he's talking about like earthly history absent, you know, the final divine intervention. And you can get this sense from the way he uses the term in other places as well. But the point being here, everything within the little scope of. Earth, or Arda, if, you know, we were looking at Middle-Earth, everything within that time-bounded scope is history, and it is all going to end badly at some point. But then, after the end of history, and he uses that phrase somewhere, I'm almost certain, but I can't think offhand where he uses it, Uh, you know, the God comes in and rescues everything, rescue in, in a metaphorical sense, you might say, but makes everything new again. So in Middle-earth terms, you would say we get the recreation of Arda unmarred, or in the Christian terms, you know, in Revelation, we get the new heaven and new earth. So Galadriel is using this same term that Tolkien himself uses, which, you know, he's actually in the letter, I think it's after he's written The Lord of the Rings, so it's he's just borrowing the phrase that he's already given to Galadriel to de- describe what he means. But the point is... Galadriel uses this word to kind of speak to the temporal nature of the defeat. It it is a long defeat, yes, but Galadriel is not in this moment saying that she thinks that everything is going to ultimately end badly in the way that the Norse did with Ragnarok. Ragnarok is, for the Norse, that's like the ultimate end, and there's no coming back from it. Now, there there are some people who theorize that there may actually have been, like, a happier ending version of Ragnarok, and I'm not trying to get into all that, but, like, the traditional understanding of Ragnarok is the giants finally come in and wipe out the gods, and, you know, it's, it's a bad ending. So, Galadriel is kind of staking out what might be a, not exactly a middle position, but, like I said earlier, kind of a marriage of these two ideas, because Galadriel does have what, in elvish terms, we would call Estel, you know, hope, the the trust, trust in Eru Iluvatar, and that, you know, God is eventually going to come in and everything is going to be made right. But she also recognizes that everything within the the bounds of the world is going to ultimately fail and come to nothing. So... How can we kind of see this play out in Lord of the Rings and other stuff? Well, Northern Courage, of course, gets expressed very well by the Rohirrim. They are kind of the stand-ins for that type of thing. And Theoden is really kind of the prime example, and Eomir as well. Theoden, at, at some points in the story, will realize that everything seems pretty hopeless, but nevertheless, he is going to do what he can, and even in the movie, he gets a line which kind of expresses this idea. Because when Aragorn is leaving to go to the Paths of the Dead, you know the other riders around are basically saying he's leaving because you know we can't face, defeat the forces of Mordor. And Theoden says, "No, we cannot, but we will face them in battle, nonetheless." You know, it's it's that sense of we can't beat them, but we're still going to fight them. And that is very much that Norse idea of, you know, we want to go to Valhalla so that we can fight the giants even though we know we're going to lose. Uh, But the, you know, Book Theoden gets many other moments like this. And one of them being at the Battle of Helm's Deep, they end up, you know, holed up in the keep. And Theoden tells Aragorn, it's not like in the movie where Aragorn has to kind of rouse Theoden's spirits. Theoden just suggests... I'm not gonna die in here trapped like an old badger. We're gonna ride out and we're gonna fight these guys and go out in glory. And and this is kind of the the non-Christian aspect of northern courage is the idea, and and this is you could see this play out in Eowyn's story, the idea that because it is kind of almost inherently virtuous to fight a losing battle, it is also kind of inherently virtuous to die in battle. And this is the, the reason why Eowyn is so hell-bent on getting to a point of dying in battle herself. That is, in her culture, kind of the ultimate you know, good thing that you can do with your life. That is how you achieve fame and glory and all the other things that she wants. And so, she wants to die in battle. Now, there is also, behind that, her sense of you know, just all kinds of negative emotions associated with the fact that for a long time Theoden was essentially a mental decrepit because of what Wormtongue had done and how she had kind of been forced to just wait on him as a nursemaid. But ultimately what I'm pointing out here is the The thing that she is going for as a positive to try to kind of make up for all those negative emotions is very much a part of her culture. And then we get Aomer in the Battle of the Polenor Fields, and Theodore has, Theoden has his moments in the Battle of the Polenor Fields as well, which are very much kind of along the same lines. The, you know, the whole battle lust where he charges and, you know, it's like he just rides out ahead of everybody because he's not really worried about dying. uh but Aomer has his moment as well because in the middle of the battle when Theoden ends up dead and he thinks that Eowyn is you know also dead and then he sees the corsair ships you know he he has this moment where you know he starts kind of singing or chanting and he has the line not Theoden as he does in the movie uh where he shouts death 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 and He is doing it in defiance of what he sees as a completely lost cause at this point. He is, you know, looking around him. The battle has been basically lost on the ground. The the Rohirrim have kind of been scattered, although he's trying to rally them. And then the Corsair ships are arriving, and it's like, okay, well, now we're toast again. We thought we might have had something going when we charged and kind of broke the lines, but that didn't work out because the... Witch King came in and ruined all that, and now there's the Corsair ships, they're getting reinforcements, and he's just like, but he laughs. You know, he laughs as if he's kind of going mad because he's just, again, that battle lust and that sense of we're going to fight to the death even though we know we're going to lose. So the Rohirrim are kind of the example par excellence of, of this idea in The Lord of the Rings. There are other instances of this, of course, uh, even in the Silmarillion, you get kind of similar notions, uh, you, because some of the human characters, you know, have this sense of it. They're not really certain where they're going to end up at the end of everything, but they also have the loyalty to the elves and they're going to stick with them. And then you have Feanor who, and this is, not exactly northern courage, because it's really more about his own pride, but it does have the same effect. Whenever he dies, and he recognizes that everything's hopeless, he can see the peaks of the thangarodrim in the distance, and he knows that the power of Melkor is, or Morgoth, is just too much. Nevertheless, he rebinds his sons to their oath, And it's like, you know, it's a losing battle, but you still got to do it anyway. Again, that's not really northern courage, because at that point it's really more about just his pride and his ego. But that idea still carries through. Turin is an interesting case. It's not really clear to me if Turin thinks he can actually win. Uh, If he thinks he can actually win, he's kind of stupid. If he doesn't think he can actually win... and, And there are hints that he recognizes that he can't, I think. But... He 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 at least sees value in going down and, and making life as miserable for Morgoth as he possibly can. So there are various characters throughout Tolkien's Legendarium who express this idea. Now the the Christianization of the idea, of course, again, that comes and it's very subtle because Galadriel, what she says, is not really clearly related to any kind of afterlife or, you know, final battle where God and his allies win, but you do get elements of this in other ways in, in writings that are unfortunately not necessarily part of what we might consider the canon, which is a really loose term when you're talking about Tolkien, but for example, in the Athrobeth between Finrod and Andreth, Finrod talks about Estel and Amdir, and he's talking about the, the trust that we have to have in Eru Iluvatar to finally make everything right. Everything is going to turn out as he plans, and that means ultimately God wins. And in this sense, Galadriel is, you know, she is accepting that, but recognizing that until that happens, it's all going to be bad. And this is the idea that Tolkien is expressing in his letter, where he says that, you know, I think that all of history is a long defeat. In other words, up until God finally intervenes to shut it all down and and start over with the new heaven and new earth, everything is just going to ultimately end in something bad. And of course, this is, you know, you read the book of Revelation, and that is, that's what happens. I mean, it gets really, 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 really bad, and then in kind of at the last minute, God intervenes divinely and wipes out all the bad guys and brings in the you know the kingdom. So. This is the Christianization of that idea. Yes, it is the long defeat. Yes, you are ultimately going to lose. Caveat without God's help. But, because God does exist, and because God will ultimately make everything right, your fighting against the inevitable defeat is valuable, not because it's an inevitable defeat, but because even though it's inevitable from your human perspective, from the divine perspective God knows that even if you lose and even if everybody else loses he can bring it all back around and make it all right in the end so for in and you could make this work in multiple ways you could say even you know and, and let's put this in Middle Earth terms just for sake of the argument let's say that Morgoth was allowed to just absolutely trample the elves in the First Age, the Valar never came in and defeated him in the War of Wrath, and he just ruled all of Middle-earth until basically the end, and God said, you know, Eru Luvatar, alright, we're done, bam, wipe it all out, and we're gonna recreate it. Everybody lost, but God still comes in at the end, wipes it out, and starts over. So, there is the sense of you have the the final battle in the War of Wrath, where it's kind of akin to the you know the Armageddon, but not really because there's also the Dagor Dagorath, which is another story entirely. But the point being here, even if you didn't have that final battle, God could just let history go until it was just absolutely pointless, and then scratch it and start over by just coming in at the last minute and then defeating Morgoth and reversing everything that happened. Similarly with the Revelation, you don't necessarily have to have an Armageddon in the way it's described in Revelation for God to ultimately have the new heaven and new earth. There are, you know, reasons why there is an Armageddon, you know, and depending on your theology you might have different explanations of that, but the point being... The final battle in in that sense doesn't have to be a final battle that is won by the good guys. There doesn't have to be a battle so there's this idea that even if in 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 history, as Tolkien would say, even if there is no final battle in which the good guys win and there isn't one in a in a Secular sin, and when I say secular, I mean without the intervention of God, without the inter- intervention of God, the good guys are going to lose that that is tolkien 's perspective as well. Evil is too powerful for good guys to ultimately win ever without god 's help. It is only because God is going to step in and Make everything right in the end; that there is going to be a final victory in favor of the good guys. That's the only way that ever works. So, in the in the Middle Earth tradition, whereas in the Christian tradition you have Revelation in the ba- Battle of Armageddon, in the Middle Earth tradition that is handled with the Dagor or Dagoroth, and that is really Tolkien's, you know, ex- kind of almost explicit call to that kind of event where. Morgoth will eventually re-enter Middle Earth, and he will, you know, wreak havoc. But then everything will just completely get, you know, finished off. And in the Dagor Dagorath, the good guys finally win, and then we get Arda unmarred, made from the singing anew of the music of the Ainur by the Ainur, the children of Iluvatar, and everybody else. All of that is, I mean, you can't read that story and and not think if you know of you know, the Battle of Armageddon and all that, and not see the parallels there, you know, new heaven and new earth, Arda Unmarred, all this, you know, the it's a recreation. It's a recreation of the world in a way that is not going to fall into the decay because of the fall of man, because that's not going to be a thing anymore. So, that's the Christianization of this idea of the... The northern courage, it's this taking the idea of, yes, we're fighting a losing battle, but that in itself is good, and saying, yes, you're fighting a losing battle, and you should fight that losing battle, but not just because it's losing. It is not good to fight it because you're going to lose. It does make you, in a sense, more courageous, but not necessarily a good thing, what makes it good is that you are fighting on the right side, which is ultimately going to win, but not because of anything you do. And so this is where that concept of Estelle comes in, because Finrod in his discussion with Andreth, he's mainly talking about your ultimate destiny as a as a mortal human you know, you have to have faith or trust that you will end up you know, living in some kind of afterlife, basically, and Andreth is, you know, expressing the the mannish doubt that but, you know, we don't know where we go and we die, and we don't, you know. So in that context, he's not talking about the ultimate victory of good so much, but the same concept applies. If you have Estelle, the trust that Eru Iluvatar has the best in mind for his creations then that is going to lead to some kind of ultimate victory for his his allies in some form or fashion even if we don't understand how or why it's going to happen so this is this is tolkien wedding these two ideas the the idea that there is a a value in fighting a losing battle but not but it's the it's wedded to this idea that the battle may be losing, but there is going to be an ultimate reconciliation of everything which will make it all work out fine. So it's taking the Norse and saying there is a virtue in that kind of courage, but it's only because Ragnarok is not the right way to look at it. It's because there's not going to be a Ragnarok, there's going to be an Armageddon. So the two ends are very different. The ending of the story is, you know, the opposite, and that's what makes there be a better value in that kind of Northern courage. Now, that's not to say that Tolkien thought that there was no value in Northern courage, because he very much did think that there was something valuable about that, and he thought it was one of I think he called it the greatest contribution of Northern European culture to, you know, the world. This idea that even though you're losing, you fight on because it's just worthwhile to fight on the right side. And that, you know, that does have a value. But again, from a a Christian point of view, like Tolkien is coming from, the value largely comes from the fact that the right side is going to win. You know, I mean, it's if the right side is just ultimately going to lose, is there really a point in fighting for it if you can't affect any good outcome? You know, I mean, it's like, okay, there is there a virtue in fighting for the right side if if there is no ultimate way to win? Or would it be better to just kind of go along to get along and make the best you can out of life rather than fighting and dying in a cause that's never going to make it anywhere? You know, there is a virtue in fighting for the right side one way or the other, but it's a lot harder to really push yourself to do that if you think that ultimately you're going to lose anyway. So, and then there's even the ultimate question of if your side is ultimately the losing side, do you really think it's the right side? Because as humans, we tend to want to have the good guys win. But if you're, you know, thinking in the Norse category of thought, then if the good guys ultimately lose, that's kind of backwards. Now, that's largely a a matter of culture because, again, we moderns have this very ingrained idea from the kinds of stories we tell ourselves that the good guys are supposed to win. The Norse had a very different idea of that. And, you know, Tolkien, I think, picked up on that in a, in a serious way. But it's a very different way of looking at life. And you have to wrestle kind of philosophically with the idea of, can I be fighting on the right side if I know I'm going to lose? Is, is it possible that the bad guys are going to win in the end? Is that really, or do I need to rethink my whole mythology or, or theology or whatever it is in, in terms of, well, maybe the winning side is the good side, right? I mean, is it is the good side defined by something like its own victory, or is it defined by something else, and how do you figure that out? So this whole thing gets really philosophically interesting if you really want to look at it that way, but the point is, Tolkien isn't from his perspective, saying that there is no value in Northern Courage per se. He very much valued Northern Courage per se, but he also kind of enhances its value by putting it in a Christian context. There's no indication in the story itself that Theoden is particularly aware of, you know, Eru Iluvatar or the Valar or anything like that. We know that the Gondorians are because we get references to the Valar from their own lips. So they still have some sense of, you know, the real divine power behind everything. We don't know that Theoden does, although very likely he at least has some awareness of the Gondorian beliefs, because his wife was a Gondorian. But th- the idea it is not beyond the pale that Theoden is, in some basic sense, a pagan in the way that a Norse would have been a pagan. Like, it, he's not... In the in the category of people who are, you know, to use a you know Christian term, believers. You know, we don't know that he actually has that kind of faith or Estel or trust in the Valar and Eru Iluvatar, and yet he goes and he dies, and he, you know, he thinks that that's a great thing. So if we assume that Theoden does not have this knowledge or belief, we can see how what he does is valuable. Even though to him it may not be valuable in the way that a Christian would see it, if that makes sense. So, Theoden's actions are valuable and they are virtuous, but it's not clear to him that he's going to get anything out of it other than, you know, I died with, you know, glory in battle and all that. So, it's really interesting to think about Theoden's role in all of this and how he might or might not fall on one side or the other of that equation, and that's one reason why I think he's kind of the ultimate example of it, because he actually is the one who dies, and therefore, if you assume that he doesn't really have the same kind of knowledge base or belief system that Faramir, say, would have, what he does really is an example of northern courage. It's like, I know I'm on the right side, I'm pretty sure it's going to all collapse, And he does, in fact, die in the process of fighting that battle, both physical battle and metaphorical battle. But, nevertheless, he does it because that's just the way that they operate. And even though he may not necessarily have any trust that he is going to gain anything out of it in the ultimate long run, like in terms of the afterlife, you know. He does mention the halls of his father, so... He has some conception of an afterlife, it would it would seem, but it's not really clear what that is because even the Norse had that same kind of idea. They had the idea of an afterlife in the Valhalla, but that's still before the final, final battle whose outcome is not good. So it's not clear just from that statement that Theoden is thinking in those terms. So this is you know, my explanation and exploration of these two ideas that Tolkien takes and puts together and how the long defeat from his, the way he uses that term, takes this kind of pagan idea of fighting, you know, the giants or the, you know, the evil in the world, knowing you're going to ultimately be defeated, and Christianizing that idea, much in the same way that, the Beowulf poet kind of Christianized Beowulf, because Beowulf is a pagan story, but the Beowulf poem that we have has a lot of Christian elements. And it's not that the Beowulf poet turns Beowulf into a Christian, much like Tolkien doesn't really clearly make Theoden into a person who is, you know, into, you know, worshipping the Valar or Eru Iluvatar, Beowulf is explicitly a pagan, it's really clear, but the the narrator of the story is putting it in terms of the overall Christian worldview and making Beowulf a hero kind of worthy of being a Christian who nevertheless is not one. So it's that same idea, and you can tell that Tolkien... Really valued that about the Beowulf poet if you read the monsters and the critics. and that's why I think that theme comes through so strongly in so many of his writings, because to him, this was one of the valuable things about you know some of that kind of literature was the fact that it preserved the old pre-Christian ideas which had their own value. But it brings them, it kind of baptizes them into the Christian faith by saying, but here's what you were missing, and here's what, you know, really makes it all work. And the thing that you valued, we can still value, but now it's kind of enhanced by these Christian ideas. That's, I think, how Tolkien was thinking about this. So, I hope that was a useful and entertaining exploration into this idea and how Tolkien was taking these ideas and, and reusing them in a different kind of context. And this also plays into how the you know he would say that his work was a fundamentally Catholic work. You know, this is part of that. And I think it's really useful to explore because it it shows how you can, you know, the Beowulf is a kind of a, a template for Tolkien for how you can have a Christian work that is still ultimately about non-Christian people because it it's the ideas behind it more so than the specific beliefs and actions of the characters within the story. So if you did like it, then please give the episode a thumbs up. Share it around for others who might be interested in the topic. Subscribe to catch all my future content. If you're on YouTube, make sure you click the bell icon so you don't miss any notifications. You can check my description below for Twitter and other social media links, and also alternate platform links and podcast ways to get this as a podcast. On Twitter, of course, I drop Tolkien-related trivia questions multiple times per week, so check that out, and you can check out my Discord server, and you can find support links as well. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namaste. Thanks to all my channel supporters, especially Elf Friends, PA Brew News, Nathan Dufour, and Paul Leone.